0: Today, I have a confession to make. I am a history nerd. And I'm sure that elicits many groans from one portion of you and many claps of agreement from others. And so, if you're someone like me, or really if you're someone who's remotely passionate about anything at all, you've likely had a conversation like this. So, Ben. What is your favorite class in school? Well, I really like my history classes. I always have. I don't know what it is, I just find history especially interesting. Oh man, when I was a student, I hated history class. All of that reading and writing and talking about dead people all the time. Such a downer. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, well, I guess it's not for everyone, but I really like it. And again, if you're like me, you probably left that conversation a little hurt. Maybe even feeling insulted, wondering why this person would bother to ask you what your favorite class was, only to put you down when they heard their response. But the reason I love history so much is because throughout all of my time in school, I have had teachers who have shown me that history affects not only my life, but the lives of those around me. And so I want to take you back in time to a colonial trading hub, a bustling metropolis inhabited by displaced and disgruntled locals alongside expatriated slaves, two groups of people all trying to advance themselves in society. You see, since this city has become a colony, it has experienced a huge economic boost. It has built new infrastructure, and it has become the epicenter for the accrual of wealth and status the exchange of good and ideas, a figurative promised land for those seeking to get ahead in the world. As you walk down the street toward the city center, you'll see on either side of you tents for merchants and shops along the road interspersed with places of worship. On one side you see a man, maybe an activist or a herald, standing on top of a crate, at the top of a flight of stairs, with a small group of people huddled around him listening to the ideas he is proposing. And you think to yourself, my, what a wonderful place this is. Teeming with diversity, open discourse of ideas, and opportunities for economic advancement. However, as you look more closely, something doesn't quite sit right. You overhear two other men clearly visitors of some sort, talking about the rumors they've heard of this place, that its people will do absolutely anything to get ahead, even if it means betraying their own families. As you continue down the causeway, you literally feel the tension impeding your progress as neighbors exchange suspicious glances. You hear merchants and traders haggling over the exchange of goods Not in seeking one another's best interest, but in true bitterness, trying to take advantage of the other. Finally, you arrive at your destination, a small church you've heard about on one of your previous journeys. You make your way inside just as the morning service is about to begin. You take a deep breath. And you sit down at the back of the congregation. You sing a few familiar songs and then everybody sits down. One man stands up and begins teaching. He speaks for a little while and then another person in the congregation stands up, points a finger and says, I can't believe you're one of them. You liar. I was not taught this way. Get off that stage. Shortly after that, a woman to your left begins shouting and people next to her join in. And before you know it, the entire service has crumbled. Three groups stand in three different corners of the room, shouting across at one another, hurling insults at people they were previously worshiping with. And you think, oh no, not this again. At least outside, I could put my head down and keep walking, but now I'm trapped in this place with these people who clearly care about nothing but their own agendas. This, my friends, is the Roman city of Corinth, the sin city of the mid-first century, viewed by the rest of the Roman Empire, pagans, Jews, and Christians alike, as the capital Of self absorption and cutthroat elitism. Even the Christians of this city, evangelized by Paul, taught by Apollos, these Christians have adopted the practices of their secular neighbors, maybe even without realizing it. In chapter one of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, It has been reported to me that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. He goes on to say that. The devotion to individual religious leaders, the desire to put themselves over one another in constant competition is not the message Paul preached. He goes on throughout the rest of the letter to the Corinthians to explain that their actions, be it sexual immorality, taking one another to court, abusing spiritual gifts for self-glorification, all of these are the result of selfishness and the acceptance of prevailing cultural norms that run completely counter to the kingdom of God. That is why, from the get go, in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Writing in verses 20 and 21, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Or the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, he chose to do through the folly of what we preach something the world was not expecting, to save those who believe. But efforts to gain power and wealth, even at the expense of others, didn't die with the fall of Rome, nor did it start there. St. Augustine, someone who a lot of our Western theology comes from, concludes that starting with the sin of Adam and Eve all the way to the sins of today, one thing is the origin. Pride. He writes, What is the origin of our evil will but pride? For pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and turns in on itself, becoming its own end. Every time we sin, we make a choice to please or trust in ourselves Rather than to trust in God and seek to please Him. When this happens, we isolate ourselves from the people around us. We cut ourselves off from the growth and the blessings that God offers. We turn away from God's intention for our lives in order to pursue what we think is best. Have you ever spent time with a five-year-old? In my past few years working in ministry, I have had both the blessing and the curse of spending a lot, a lot of time with five-year-olds. And I can tell you that they are some of the sweetest, most sincere people you will ever meet. Listen to the way they pray. Sincere, trusting but unfortunately, five-year-olds are also some of the most selfish people you will ever meet. Their favorite word is no. Um, and basically, anything that they don't want to do, they won't. <laughs> I remember one particular camper who I worked with, who, whenever we asked him if he wanted to do something, do you want to come color? Why don't you grab your lunch? We're going to go eat. Time to pack up. We're going home. No. 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 And this particular camper always wanted to do one thing play Monopoly. (laughs) He loved this game so much that he would pull it out of the shelf and sit by himself, just circling the board, (laughs) giving himself money, building houses. (laughs) It was really something. But because he always wanted to play Monopoly, because he never wanted to do what we had planned for the group, he missed out on a lot of really, really great things. On our field trip to the water park, he asked me, I kid you not, 25 times, when can we play Monopoly? <laughs> and he missed out on friendships with many of the other kids at camp because. He never wanted to do what other people were doing. He never wanted to sacrifice his own desires for the sake of those he cared about. And while most of us have probably forgotten what it's like to be five years old, I don't think our experience is all that different. We, too, insist upon having our own way. Having everything line up with our preferences Rejecting people who want to do things differently than we do. When asked to do something a little bit uncomfortable, our first answer is often no. This pride and self-centeredness is exploited by our enemy and by the ways of the world. Perpetuating lie after lie, convincing us that we need to preserve and satisfy ourselves. Rather than look to God to cling to our possessions our desires our status and our wealth instead of giving up them up to god to experience the life that he offers in their pride the people of the corinthian church caved they caved to the lie The lie that says their own individual point of view, their own preferences, their own success was the end game. They believed that people devoted to a particular Christian teacher had a greater claim to truth than those devoted to another. They believed that they could pursue their sinful desires and reckless chasing after material gain while still maintaining a right relationship with God and their neighbors. They believed that their spiritual gifts were superpowers meant to elevate themselves rather than the grace of God meant to build up the community. And honestly, I think that the lies that the Corinthian church believed aren't all that different from the lies we believe today. Even here at Indiana Wesleyan. How many of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that we must pursue the right degree or have the highest GPA, even at the expense of our relationships, our time with God, or our integrity? How many of us have left our room in the morning or made a comment in class thinking to ourselves, man, I hope people are impressed by me. I hope people think that I'm the stuff. Well, here's a common one. How often do we believe the lie that in order to be happy and successful and fulfilled, we need to be married? Because all truly happy, fulfilled, and successful people have spouses. What about this one? That anyone who disagrees with me is either incompetent, hypocritical, or straight-up evil. These are the lies that make up the wisdom of the world. Lies which deceive us into believing that our way and our own interests are going to lead us to a rich and satisfying life. But they're not. They're the lies that tell us that anyone who comes at things from a little bit different angle or offers a little bit of pushback, be it political, cultural, or theological, So, pretty much everybody else is either an obstacle, an enemy, or a tool to use for our own advancement. But God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is focused on teaching them a more excellent way. The way of the cross. The way that says... My own interests are going to be set aside for the sake of love. In Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul states, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross. A Roman torture device, the universal sign of defeat and death. This is the tool that God used to show his love and power. To win the ultimate victory and make true life and joy available to us. This is the message Paul preached to the Corinthians and wants us to hear today. There's a more excellent way. That rather than coming first in glory and grandeur, Christ came in lowliness and love, forsaking comfort and honor, and power, that we may be given life, and that we may follow in his footsteps. When the wisdom of the world says that we must have a certain look to be successful, the wisdom of God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. When the wisdom of the world says you need to have a certain degree or amount of money or a spouse in order to be fulfilled, the wisdom of God says the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. When the wisdom of the world says take it easy, live it up, your comfort and pleasure is the most important thing, the wisdom of God says take up your cross and follow me. The wisdom of the world says, pick a side. Our side is good and their side is evil. The wisdom of God says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul reminds us that Christians are not baptized in the name of John Wesley, Donald Trump, Joel Osteen, or John Calvin, they are baptized in the name of Christ. And that each of our own agendas are not the end game of Christianity. God's agenda is. Therefore, those who follow Christ are to follow his example before anything else. His example of love and humility. The way of the cross, the way of love, runs against everything the world wants to teach us, completely counter to the wisdom out there. The way of the cross is patient. It is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. The way of the cross is the way of love, and it cannot coincide with selfishness and pride. We desire the wisdom and righteousness, the sanctification and redemption offered by Christ. If we truly want to advance the kingdom of God, we must do it God's way. In chapter 1, verses 28 and 31, Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let no the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He uses the low. He acts not first in selfishness, but in humility. Not in pride, but in love. He looks at someone who has rejected him three times. A Galilean fisherman and says, On this rock I will build my church. He looks at a violent Pharisee and says, He is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. He looks at a perfectionist, all too aware of his own imperfections and shortcomings, and says, even though you still are figuring most of this out for yourself, I'm calling you to teach. This is God's way. Turning the way of the world upside down running counter to everything that we've been taught for the sake of love. Making his power known through weakness. The wisdom of God, the way of the cross, says that the last shall be first. That whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, theirs is the kingdom of God. And a whole host of other things that to the world seems like foolishness. that when we hear it, we say, "What?" This is the truth that counteracts the lies of the world. The truth that reminds me that it's not all about myself my opinions, my success, my desires. It reminds me to let go of these things for the sake of a way far more excellent. The way of the cross. The way of Jesus Christ. When we let go our desire to be recognized or successful or comfortable, we begin to walk in the way of Christ and participate in the work The kingdom of God. So, next time you catch yourself insisting upon a certain restaurant for dinner, or about to make a comment you know will make you sound intelligent, the next time you look down on a brother or sister in Christ because of their political opinion or theological view of something that really isn't all that important, consider the way of the cross, the wisdom of God if we are to become the people and the community that God intends, this is the way it has to be. Living our lives His way and not our own. Instead of saying, me, 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 we're saying Him, Him, Him. So I ask, whose wisdom will you choose? the wisdom of the world, which leads to broken relationships, constant need to be satisfied, and ultimately death, or the way of God, which leads to right relationships, life, and joy. The way the cross, the way of Christ who was crucified, the source of our life.